What is really so different about the Christian way of treating other people? Have you ever thought about that? Do we have anything unique to contribute to the human understanding of that ethical approach, that manner of conducting ourselves in relationships with others that is distinctive in any really significant way? After all, if you are a student of history and culture, you will recognize that many, many different civilizations have had their own version of what we commonly call the golden rule. The famous rabbi Hillel, for example, was once challenged by some of his students to teach them the entire Jewish law uh, while standing on one foot, to which the uh, learned rabbi without blinking, raised up on one foot, and replied, what is hateful to thee, do not do to another. What is hateful to thee, do not do to another, for that is the whole law, and all else is but explanation. Philo, the Alexandrian, the great African wise man, once said in remarkably similar terms to Hillel, what you hate to suffer... Do not do to anyone else. That's the basic rule. Do not do what you hate to suffer from the hands of anyone else. Or Isocrates, the brilliant Greek orator of an earlier generation, remarked many years before the birth of Jesus himself, whatever things make you angry when you suffer them at the hands of others, do not do to other people. That's the basic rule. Pay attention to what it is you don't like and don't do it to other people. And Confucius, from the other side of the planet, the great ancient Chinese sage, summed up his social code like this. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. This almost universal philosophy of human behavior might simply be called the doctrine of never unless... Never steal somebody's parking place unless you'd like to have them grab it when you're desperate for that spot. Never call somebody's mom a hag unless you'd like them to be insulting your mother too. Never sell somebody a termite-infested house unless you don't mind being sold a pile of sawdust too. Never unless. And there are many people who believe that this is basically what Jesus teaches too. That this is a pretty fair summary of the Christian ethic at its core. That Christianity is about this reciprocal way of life. It's about fairness and balance and and the limitation of harm. This is what Jesus is all about. Never Unless, but it's not true. It's not even close to what Jesus truly taught. And I want to invite you this morning to feel the shock with me of what he does say. Because I think it's possible, it has been for me possible to hang around church for a long time and still not take this stuff in. 
still not recognize the radical calling of Christian discipleship. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, never damage somebody else's eye or tooth unless you'd want yours damaged too. But I tell you, said Jesus, and that's very, very important, that but, but I tell you, because he's marking out new territory. He's trying to help us separate ourselves from the common way and common understanding. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may show yourself to be children of your Father who, who is in heaven. The way you love your enemies and you do good to those who persecute you, show your very different family membership that you are of, you are like your Father in heaven. Jesus goes on and says, you have heard it said, never do evil unto others unless you want evil done unto you. But I tell you, again, marking out the difference, I tell you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak too. And if someone forces you to go one mile, and the context here is that Roman soldiers, by law, had permission to conscript anybody to carry their goods a single mile, Jesus says, if they do that to you, and the Jewish people hated this practice, Go a second mile. Go two miles with him, says Jesus. In other words, it is not enough to refrain from doing evil when someone does you dirty. That's not my ethic, Jesus says. That may be the world's version of righteousness. It's not mine. It is not enough. If you want to be my disciple, then you must go out of your way, over the line, extra miles, sacrificially if need be, to do good to even bad, difficult, different, dangerous, dumb people, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Now i got to hit the pause button here and ask, I'm taking off the preacher hat and putting on the just like you had, and ask you, is there anybody here that's thinking as you listen to these words, that sounds crazy. I mean, are you really going to teach your kid, listen, Johnny, when you're out on the playground and that big bully comes along and he socks you in the right eye, this is what I want you to do. Turn your left foot side to him and say, hey, Butch, you missed this one. You going to do that as a parent? Or, or, or suppose a, a fight breaks out in your, in your home, and it's the, the, you, the two girls are fighting, and the daughters are fighting, and, and Sally comes in and says, Mom or Dad, uh, you know, Su Susie took my blouse. She didn't even ask. She got it all dirty. You know, is your response going to be, well, did you offer her the prom dress too? Did you? Or how about you? You're, you're going to work this week. You're, you're down the city. You're, you're walking on your way to the office and somebody accosts you on the street and they, they, they 
There's a panhandler there, or they may, maybe they even mug you, and you give them what they have. And as they're going down the sidewalk, you go, oh, wait, wait one second. Wait, wait, excuse me. You know, back at the house, I got this box of jewelry and, and this flat screen TV. Come on home. I mean, what Jesus teaches here, it, it, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, it, 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 it's foolishness. It, it, it would I, love my enemies. I don't even like them. You know, I have a hard time liking my friends sometimes. Right? Do good to those who persecute me or hurt me. I'd become the doormat of the world. Jesus What are you talking about? If you are in that place, if you've ever been in that spot as you listen to the teachings of Jesus, then you're in exactly the spot he wants you to be. Because until we recognize how foolish is the way of God when compared to the way of the world, we can never get to the place where we recognize that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And that is the teaching of the Scriptures. For the call of Jesus is to do something unnatural for most of us. Jesus' ethic defies human nature precisely because it takes its cue from divine nature. If Jesus' vision for living and loving seems to you to run counter to the principles of life in the real world, you've got it right. Because he is calling us to live according to the principles of a different world. According to the principles of the kingdom of God itself. And until we stop trying to conform the teaching of Jesus to some slightly better version of utilitarianism, to what works in the immediate sense for me, to get what I want reciprocally from others, until we make that shift, we are not disciples of Jesus. Okay? We we have not yet embarked on the radical way of living that is the kingdom of God. And, and if this is upsetting you, you've got company. This is upsetting to me too. And, and I just want to think about this a little further with you this morning. Listen again to the words of Jesus. If you love those who love you, and let me just underline this, I've said this before, biblically speaking, love is not an emotion. Love is a commitment. To love is to will the good of another. It is to will the good of another in the sense enough that you actually move towards that good. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get from your Father in heaven? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I mean, these were the worst people in his time. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, in other words, you show hospitality, only to people that you feel kinship with, what is that? What more are you doing than other people? Don't even the pagans 
people who don't even acknowledge the God of, of, of heaven do that? Be perfect, he says. Strive for something more as your heavenly Father is perfect. For he, and this is the most important word in the whole paragraph, he, he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends his blessed rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, the ethic of Jesus is not simply a slight upgrade of the old eye for an eye uh, or never unless doctrine of living. The ethic of Jesus has nothing to do, and I, I, this, may, this is the most important, wake up your neighbor if they've nodded off. This is the most important thing I'm going to say to you. The, the call of Jesus has nothing to do with reciprocity. I do this so I get that. It has nothing to do with reciprocity towards other people and everything to do with response toward God. Okay? It has everything to do with response towards God. In fact, you and I will know we're starting to live and to love the way Jesus commanded us to. And by the way, he wouldn't have had to make it a command if this was easy. We will be doing this when we have learned to ask and we've trained ourselves to ask, not how should I treat this jerk given what he's just done to me? What should I do to her given what she has shown a pattern of doing toward me? When we're no longer, that doesn't even come on our screen anymore. And the question becomes instead, how How has God treated me? And therefore, how, with him living in me, will I move in his way toward this other person? And let me just say as a sidebar, sometimes that may mean knocking them upside the head and waking them up. There may be moments where that is the case. Or turning over a table like Jesus did with the money changers. But many times, it will mean showing them amazing grace, nevertheless. So, how has God treated you? Right? And and here's, here's, how has he treated me? I ask myself the question. The answer is, with an extravagant love, with what theologians call remarkable or amazing grace. God's grace, his amazing love, was at work in the fact that when the amino acids that make up me and you could have as easily formed a sardine or the inside of a salami sandwich, you and I became human beings. These extraordinary creations. This was his grace moving Uh, Through us. God's extravagant love was working that time you or I skidded on our bicycle as we were going alongside of the traffic or were in our car and were texting when we shouldn't have been or or lost our way or had been, uh, been celebrating too hard and somehow, even though we went off the path, we were spared the full consequences of what could have happened. 
nevertheless. God was acting in love toward you when that mentor saw your immaturity, imperfection, and chose to invest in you, nevertheless. When that special person you know looked past your thousand subtle sins and all of the blind things about you that don't even see what needs working on and those ugly aspects of ourselves and said, I love you and will marry you. Or when you receive that saving insight in the midst of your confusion or that surge of energy came that you needed to finish the race or to to beat the deadline, or that strange sense that there was a great presence with you in a time of terrible grief came, when these things happened, God was showing you the extravagance of his love for you. Oh, how he loves you. Nowhere is that more vivid, however, than on the cross of Calvary. When by everything in human nature, the person hanging on that cross should have looked at a people so wickedly insane that they would nail so savagely perfect goodness himself to that place. He responded not with the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation so clearly deserved, but spoke from the center of the divine nature those words of extravagant love, Father, forgive them. Nevertheless, if you have taken that love in, it will change you. If you are not changed, you have not taken the love in. Or you just need to take more of it in. I need to take more of it in. Because as the reality of this love with which we have been loved penetrates our inmost being, more and more we begin to love like he loves. And, and the voice which rises in us naturally, the voice of human nature that says, I will never do good to this person unless they change this or they start doing that, gets replaced by this voice of God's nature that says, love this person as I love you, nevertheless. Jesus does not call us to do these things because he thinks it's going to be an easier way of life for us in the short term. Let's be really clear about that. It's not like this is a good strategy for getting an easier life. Jesus, I think, used the words cross deny self in association with this way of life. Uh, Jesus did not call us to this way of life because he thought that if we did it, it would naturally impress other people. And they'll just be amazed and they'll just be applauding the way we're loving like this. Because the reality is a lot of time they will think, you fool, you idiot, you naive person, wake up, wake up, you're getting used. We don't love people extravagantly because it is certain to change them. They'll see how great I am, and they'll just, this, this vile person, this dark, difficult person will suddenly, whoo, have this Pollyanna wake-up moment and become fabulous. 
Because often they don't. Often they don't. The reason we treat people with extravagant love is because it is a natural response. It is a way of worshiping and honoring the one who has loved us that way first. And yet, I would be selling the gospel short if I did not also point out that sometimes, sometimes this way of loving people, when it's practiced over a long period of time in many situations, has this rather amazing way of unleashing a certain life-changing power. When he was running for the presidency of the United States in 1860, Abraham Lincoln had many enemies. Uh, He was a controversial figure. And one of his most exquisite, articulate enemies was a gentleman by the name of Edwin McMaster Stanton. There was something, maybe there was everything about Lincoln, which Stanton despised. Uh, He just, he could hardly speak Lincoln's name without a curl in his lip. You know, he just... He wretched at the thought of Lincoln's politics and his personality, and he used every opportunity he could to revile him and degrade him publicly, and Stanton was a public figure. In fact, Lincoln uh, inspired such contempt in Edwin McMaster Stanton that, that he would publicly lampoon Lincoln's looks. He, 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 he ridiculed him as a, as a goon, an ugly goon unfit to represent the American people in the Oval Office. But Lincoln was elected to the presidency nonetheless, as you well know. And it fell upon the new president to select a cabinet of advisors who would need to be his most intimate and trusted allies in serving the cause of this American people. And then there came the day when he had to select the all-important post of Secretary of War in a time of war, and you know who he picked for the job. Edwin McMaster's Stanton. Lincoln's advisors went apoplectic uh, when they heard of his choice. (laughs) They thought the guy had gone crazy. He said, Mr. They went to Mr. President, do you, I mean, are you, Have you taken the foolishness drug or whatever it is? I mean, this guy's your enemy. He is your mortal enemy. Do you know the things he's been saying about you? To which Lincoln responded, I know Mr. Stanton quite well. And yet I find, as I survey all of the circumstances, that he remains the person best qualified to serve the American people at this time. Some years later, after the president was assassinated, Lincoln was honored from coast to coast. He was paid tribute in eloquent words by thousands of Americans, brightly recounting the virtues of the man. But of all of the testimonies to Lincoln given, Perhaps none shine so luminously as the words 
of his very effective, brilliant Secretary of War. Standing near the coffin of the man that he had once so hated, Edwin McMaster Stanton spoke of Lincoln as one of the greatest men who had ever lived. Stanton said through his tears, he now belongs to the ages. Some years before, in the midst of the Civil War, when the feelings between the North and South were as bitter as it's possible for a people to be, even worse than the conditions that we see in our divided nation today, Lincoln had dared to speak a word of extravagant kindness, of grace, of good toward the people of the South as well. And when it was asked by a shocked listener how in the world he could bring himself to speak that way of the enemies of the Union, Lincoln responded, Why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Leadership. is willing to go beyond the common order. We need leaders like Lincoln everywhere today, in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in the, in the Oval Office, in the quarters of Congress, in every state house. We need leaders like this who are willing to answer a different call, a higher call, who are ambitious for a kingdom that is above all. For you see, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is a great ethic so long as you don't mind a world that is eventually entirely blind and toothless. And the doctrine of never unless is an improved ethic, I suppose, if your idea of a great world is one in which we have found ways of at least limiting how much harm we're going to do to each other. But if your ambition is for a better kingdom than that, and I believe it is, as is mine, if your passion is to see a world that more closely resembles the kingdom of of light and love and life and hope and transformation that is pictured by Jesus, if you believe that Christ was not actually crazy when he said that by nailing him to the cross it would not defeat him, but that the whole world will be drawn to his feet. If you believe there is a power God unleashes even in sacrificial love, just maybe, just maybe, you're willing to be his disciple. Just maybe, you've caught a glimpse today of his glory at the cross as Lincoln had caught that glimpse. Just maybe you're being drawn closer to his heart as I pray I'm being drawn closer to that heart every time I come before him and worship with you. And just maybe, because of that, somebody that you meet this week who is difficult, different, dangerous, or dumb is going to meet in you a more extravagant love, a love that treats them not because they are worthy, or because they've treated you worthily, but loves them nevertheless, because you have first been loved this way.
may this be our way. Would you please pray with me? Gracious God, we, we do confess to you how stubbornly hard-hearted we are. I, I, will, I am the chief of sinners here, Lord. You know that. How often I try and bend your plain teaching to serve me, to, to limit what I have to do, to reinforce my sense of righteousness, Lord God, I can hear it in my, in my spirit even now, the roiling and the railing against this bold, controversial teaching you've given. But I want to be your disciple, and I'm in the company of many who want to be your disciples. And so, Lord, fill us afresh, fill us more deeply, with the wonder of your extravagant love that we may become more like you, helplessly more like you as we go out into the world this week. For we pray in the strong, powerful, world-changing name of Jesus. Amen.